0: Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from 1st Naz podcast. We have been working our way through John's gospel together. If you're not real familiar with the Bible, there's, there's two big sections of the book, one called the Old Testament. It's, it's uh, a lot of history of the nation of Israel and, and its relationship with God and the, the people of the nations around it. It's a story of what God was hoping to do. He was hoping to have such a relationship with one group of people that the rest of the world would look on and say, I want that, and and would slowly be attracted both to God and to his people and would inquire and find out how to have that kind of relationship. The New Testament, the the second uh, half, it's really kind of the last one-third of the Bible in terms of volume thickness of the book. The, the New Testament is the story of how God got very pointed in, in, in making that relationship happen. He pointed out the problem with humanity, our, the brokenness in our hearts and our minds and our actions that has broken down peace in this world and, and peace with God. And very specifically, the, the New Testament starts with four different versions, four different people who told stories, their, their understanding of the life and the teachings and ministry of Jesus Christ, a man who was born in Nazareth about, oh, almost 2000, about 2,000 years ago. The New Testament uh, writers together arrived at the conclusion that this was no ordinary man, that though he was a human being, real flesh and blood, he was more than that as well. He was God come in the flesh to live among human beings, to accept upon himself the just punishment for all the wrong and evil that had been done in the world. And to do that, he made himself a sacrifice like people in the ancient world would understand. As they were, were uh, accustomed to killing animals in sacrifice, he offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of of the whole world. Those writers go on to tell incredible things about the life of Jesus, including his resurrection from the dead, his uh, very pointed instructions to his followers after his resurrection, proving that he had, in fact, come back from the dead, his eventual ascension into heaven. And the writers of Scripture say, there he sits at the Father's right hand. He has authority over this world. But he doesn't use it like a king who is uh, hungry for power. He uses his power for the good of his subjects. What's God doing today? What's Jesus doing today? Finding a way to do good to the people that they love. That's us. It's all of us. We're kind of trying to get a fresh look at Jesus because the, the, the church for 2,000 years has had this this cloud of witnesses all chiming in with different understandings about who Jesus is. We, we're, we have the essentials all in common, but there's this, this growing cloud uh, of, of story about Jesus that, that ends up painting him uh, in the minds of many people to be something like a mythological character. And the scriptures, the, the Bible, they, they do not... Uh, present to us a Jesus who is um, fake, phony, or um, intentionally made up for the purpose of teaching spiritual truths, but really just a, a parable or a fable. He's a real human being. One of those first, uh, one of those four writers, the first four books in the New Testament, was a man named John, and he was one of Jesus' very closest friends for the last three years of his life. Think about your best friends. They know you significantly differently than the public does, huh? Significantly different than just your acquaintances or or maybe the the people at your job or maybe some of your family, your friends may know you better than, than your family. John was one of Jesus' best friends. And he gives us a look, a fresh look at Jesus that is um, somewhat different. It's, it's a part of that big cloud of stories, but taken by itself, John's version of Jesus is a significantly different person. In fact, the, the part of John's gospel that we're going to read today is, uh, is, is part of the, the most loved sections of scripture because it's, a story, it's story after story after story of, of Jesus performing miracles John didn't like the word miracle. He, uh, he preferred instead the word sign for every miracle that Jesus performed because he thought that Jesus wasn't just doing magic tricks to get attention and street cred. Instead, he, John understood that whenever Jesus performed a miraculous sign, it was pointing to something far more important than that event itself. And the, the works that Jesus did, the miracles, were pretty incredible. He, he healed people. Scriptures tell us that he raised a person or two from the dead. He did incredible things, changed the weather. Farmers, take note. Okay? But John seemed to believe that every time Jesus did one of those miraculous, incredible acts, it was not just about that moment, it was pointing to a greater reality that Jesus is God. Not just a religious teacher, not just Israel's ultimate religious teacher, but that he was God come in the flesh. Let's kind of recap where we've been thus far. The, the book opens, John's version, he doesn't tell any of the Christmas story or any of that. He said, <coughs> what you need about, to know about Jesus is really the stuff of his adult life and somewhere around 30, it seems, uh, Jesus made a trip from where he lived in northern Israel down toward the nation's capital because there was some sort of um, religious revival taking place. The preaching and teaching of a man named John the Baptist, who happened to be John, uh, Jesus' cousin, uh, was causing quite a stir. And John's message was, you need to take care of your sin. You need to knock it off. But one day, God grabbed John by the collar and he said, um, I'm going to send somebody, I have sent somebody into this world who's going to take care of the people's sin for them. Change your message from you got to take care of your sin to God has sent somebody who will do it with a sense of finality. And just to make sure that you don't get confused who this guy is, um, I'll give you this sign. The Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, will come out of heaven. You will see him, John. And he will land on the one I've chosen like a dove lands on its perch. So John's back out there preaching the message and one day John sees Jesus making his way through the crowd and sure enough the sign while he's in fact baptizing Jesus some of the other writers tell us and John then just changes his message. Look! It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. John had gathered around himself a bunch of disciples. He said you should follow Jesus instead. A bunch of them abandoned him and and, uh, as John committed professional suicide he sent sent his guys to go follow somebody else and away they went and and jesus who was down there in in the southern part of of the country where all the action had been and where the action now was he was gaining popularity the who's who of the religious elite in their country were beginning to take notice and they said there's two problems down there now there's john the baptist and there's jesus and jesus is more popular than john the baptist we didn't like john the baptist very much And about the time that Jesus realized that the who's who were on to this whole thing, as his ministry's really rolling, he, he just becomes his own personal PR nightmare. And what you see over the rest of the course of Jesus' ministry is his ministry would begin to flourish and grow in popularity and influence. And about the time that he became aware of it, he would become his own PR nightmare again partly because he wasn't interested in the things that his people seemed to be interested in. He, he absolutely refused to become a political leader. So, he's popular, it's happening, the ministry's rolling there uh, in, in Judea, in the southern part, and he just decides, ah, oh, it's time time to go back home. So he fled the scene. He goes back up to Galilee in the north, and, and he just goes back into family life, and he's attending a wedding in a neighboring village. And there, the young couple runs out of wine, a complete embarrassment at their uh, reception feast. Uh, John, uh, Jesus' mom comes to him and says, listen, I know that you know how to take care of this. Nobody else knows that you know how to take care of it, but I know. And it's time. He said, Mom, it is so not time. It is not time. And she looked at the people around him, cleared her throat, and said, do whatever he tells you. And she went back to the party, and Jesus said, yes, Mom. And he turned water into wine. And John says this, the first miraculous sign that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. And some of his disciples believed in him. They thought he was important before. They, they, were, they could see he was a trend-setting kind of guy. I better jump on with him. We like some of the things he's saying. But it was at this moment, when, when he gave him the sign, when he, he, he did something that pointed to a greater reality than just earthly popularity, when, when he tipped his hat and said, God, people believed in him. That was back up north. Uh, Sometime later, uh, he decided to go back down south. It was for one of the the big festivals called Passover. And and so Jesus goes down, and the the temple is just this incredible, hopping place where everybody who was healthy in the whole nation was supposed to make an appearance there over the course of the week. And it was joyful and, and incredibly busy. And in all of it, Jesus gets in there and trashes one of the courts in the temple. They're, they're selling uh, animals for sacrifice and they're exchanging money and the rates are not fair and Jesus just goes in there and he shreds the place and, and says that he made a whip and he didn't just carry it around and threaten people with it. He trashed the place, turned over the tables and said, pay attention, this is not how real faith is done. So this is, place is supposed to be called a house of prayer. You turn it into a den of robbers. There were a lot of people who liked the show. There were a lot of people who said, yeah, that's what I've been saying my whole life. And what does Jesus do as his popularity starts to swell after he, you know, kind of a PR nightmare of trashing the temple, but the after effect was a swell in the numbers. What did he do? He Took off for home. (coughs) Pardon me. Took off for home. And this time he went through an area called uh, Samaria. I talked about that last week and how uh, it it was, it was a PR, PR nightmare of its own because Jesus was going to people that, that the nation of Israel hated racially, they hated them religiously, and they hated them culturally. They said they are a serious problem to be avoided. It makes you spiritually unclean to even have anything to do with these people. And, and Jesus is a huge success among the Samaritans, enough that he stays for a couple of days and an entire village, says we believe in him, those are not the numbers you want. The Samaritans. It was a PR nightmare for Jesus. If he was ever going to be effective among the Israelis, it was a PR nightmare for him to be successful among the Samaritans. leaves there and he goes back up toward his homeland. And at this point, Jesus is feeling a little melancholy. And he says to, to his followers, his, his disciples, who were kind of traveling with him at that point, he says, you know, I don't even know why I'm bothering to go home because a prophet it uh, seems to get honored everywhere except in his hometown. But let's go. And then John kind of points out, well, Jesus was wrong. <laughs> he says that the Galileans actually received him really well. And so this warm welcome for Jesus, who's kind of caught off guard by it. But then in the middle of this warm welcome, there's a guy in the next village who hears, oh yeah, Jesus showed up back up in, in the home country again. And this guy has heard about what Jesus has done for some other people. And um, he decides that since he has a sick son, he should go see Jesus and, and, and ask him to heal him. So he presses, you know, goes from the next town, presses through the crowd, gets up to Jesus, and he says, I would really appreciate it if you would heal my son. If you don't, I think he's gonna die. And Jesus I can't believe it, says, you people, all you want is signs. It's all you want. You're never going to believe in me unless I perform a sign for you. And the disciples are in the corner going, man, Jesus, give the guy a break. And actually, the guy didn't come looking for a sign. He just wanted his kid well. And, And he told Jesus that. And Jesus said, oh, well, you can head home. He'll be fine. Kind of a PR nightmare when you when you get all bony fingered at the guy who wants his kid to be well. Some time goes by. It seems it's about a year later. Jesus headed back down south, headed down to the temple for the big Passover celebration again. And he gets down there. There's masses. There's, there's a, a part of of the the holy city there where there's this weird pool of water. It's just this. You know, sludgy little pond. But for some reason, from time to time, the thing would, the, with no wind, it's like the the water would just start having fits, and people came to believe that an angel would come down and stir the water, and the first person in would get to be healed. And so it became a very popular place for all the sick and 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 the folks who had all kinds of deformities and and accidents and injuries. And 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 John said that there were crowds of sick people there. One day Jesus walks into that area. and, And he finds one guy who for 38 years has been laying there but crippled. He can't he can't get to the water. Think about it. There's this opportunity. We don't know when it's coming. But every day I'm going to hope that it's today and somebody helps me get there. But every time it's somebody else. Well, what what choice do I have but to go back tomorrow? So he talks, you know, his cousin or his mom or whoever to helping him get there one more time. And Jesus walks in that day, and he, for some reason, he sees through all those all the crowds of other people who also legitimately want to be well. And he says, how about you? That guy starts to tell him the story. Jesus says, I don't have time for the story. This story took 38 years for you to live it. It's going to take real close to tell it. Do you want to be well? He says, yeah. So Jesus makes him well. And we've celebrated that story a lot. But imagine you're one of the other sick people there that day. Jesus walked past little kids, old-timers. He walked past... He he didn't heal everyone but one that day. That is bad PR if you're trying to become, you know, the country's favorite religious leader. After he heals the guy, um, the religious leaders, they, they... they want to know who, they think it's Jesus, but they want, to, they want to ask this guy, who was it that healed Jesus? I don't know, it's just the guy, walked up and said, and "I yes. And, uh, he takes off and he's, for the first time in his life, getting to do the temple stuff, because he's well and whole. And he's there in the crowd that's singing and worshiping and doing all the things. Jesus slips up next to him and says, hey. The guy turns and looks at him. I don't know what Jesus could see in that man's heart. He said to him, "Um, stop sinning. There's something far worse is going to happen to you than being crippled. You want to become a uh, popular religious leader? Threatening people isn't uh, a real good way to do that. Kind of a PR nightmare. So the guy rats him out. He goes to the religious authorities and says, right over there, Jesus. Jesus. That's not how miracle stories are supposed to end, with the threat and the guy ratting you out, but that's the way that one ended. Jesus' best friend, John, telling the story. Jesus leaves. Uh, everybody did. Everybody left after the Passover, and Jesus goes back up to Galilee. It's, you know, 70 miles each time that they make the trek, and Jesus goes back up to Galilee, and there. His ministry, really, it seems like now it's really fully engaged. It kind of sputtered and uh, a couple of times early on, but it's like this thing goes to full ignition at this point. And crowds, big crowds, are coming to hear him teach. At one point, he's, he's on this hillside above the Sea of Galilee, and uh, because their culture was, you know, pretty patriarchal and so forth, um, they just counted the men. They said there were there were at least five thousand men there, and they they brought their families, wives, kids. So fairly large families, but let's be conservative. Let's say there's a, a, a woman and a child for every man there. There's 15, 20,000 people here to, to listen to Jesus teach. And about halfway through the day, uh, he says to the disciples, how are we going to feed these people? Now listen, let's not fool ourselves. If these people were trekking out away from town and they know that, you know, they didn't go to hear a 30-minute sermon and then have to get home for football, they, um, they were planning on, on spending the day with him, and they had, um, you know, a, a few people had snacks in their pockets, let's be honest. But nobody will offer to share and, until one of the disciples strong arms his little kid and takes his lunch and says, um, um, good luck, Jesus. And uh, Jesus says, I can work with that, and, and <coughs> really wanting to teach teach these disciples of his. I don't know what he wanted to teach the crowd, but he wanted to teach the disciples so that they really could trust that he's God. And so he works about 20,000 miracles. Not one. Because every person who didn't have a lunch got one. And from nothing to something is, is a miracle. It's a sign that Jesus is God. And at the end of the day, uh, he's national hero. He's got 20,000 people going, ah, I didn't bring enough lunch. I didn't bring any lunch, or I didn't bring enough lunch. And I had plenty of lunch. I had so much left over, I gave it some back. And, and Jesus was instantly famous, bona fide famous. 20,000 Facebook friends at the end of the day, right? And Jesus creates his own PR nightmare. He said, I have got to get away from these people. And he sends the disciples off uh, in the boats, uh, kind of quick, guys, you go, and uh, you'll create the diversion. They'll think I'm with you. They'll follow you, and I can sneak up into the hills and relax for a little bit and pray and reconnect with the Father. And he does all that. And uh, sure enough, the next morning, the crowd thinks, "Oh, we know where those guys are. We know where their boats are always docked. Let's go. And so... um, they' get over there, Jesus had rejoined them, and it, there, there's just not a worse way for the story to go from here forward. He says uh, hey, you guys are looking for a sign." then he says, "You know what you're not even looking for a sign, you're just looking for sandwiches you, you don't believe in me because you believe a sign that pointed out that I'm God, you just you just want more of the signs you just." You just want the food. And they said, now listen here. You're right. You, but you're going to have to perform another sign. You have to perform a sign or we're not going to believe in you. Jesus says, I did 20,000 signs yesterday. And you don't believe? He says, let me, let me do this. Let me at least teach another lesson. And he starts to tell this. He preaches the worst sermon ever is what he does. He says, you got to believe in me. I mean, really believe in me. Forget the signs. Believe in me. And if you do, you'll gain real spiritual life. If you really connect with me, you're going to become really alive for the first time in your life and it'll be like I am bread for your soul. Like I'm like I'm the bread of, of life. And you'll never be hungry again because you'll be really alive and taken care of. And people are going, yeah, I like that. I like the sound of that. And then Jesus completely ruins the sermon. He says, so if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood. You don't have any business hanging out with me. And the kind of Cliff Purcell uh, working man's translation it has the crowd saying, well, that's creepy. <laughs> they said, this is a hard teaching. Yeah, It's bad PR, Jesus. You had him right there. Literally eating out of your hand. And they came back the next week, the next day. And you said, how about you eat the hand? And he wouldn't give them lunch on day two. And they got mad and they left him. It's just, why does John tell these stories? Why does he tell these incredible stories Proofs that this man is God. He does things no other human being could even pretend to do. He proves that he's God. And then runs people off, tries to. But a handful stick around. The end of that story is after everybody else left, Jesus looks at his disciples and he goes, You guys too. You gonna leave? Hit the bricks. And one of them just looks at him and says, where are we going to go? You've proven it to us. Your words are the, the words of life. So we're sticking around. You can't run us off. Why does John tell these stories of a Jesus whose ministry is rolling? And then he you know, commits professional suicide again and again and again and again and Helps some people believe and seems to make it hard for others. Answers some prayers and ignores a thousand other people who need help. Walks past them anyway. Why does he do these things? He told us. T- today's passages are, are scattered all over chapters four and five and six of John's gospel. In chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus is in an elongated argument with some people who are saying, what are you doing? And he says, I have a greater witness than John the Baptist, who was a pretty good witness. I have a greater witness about who I am than John the Baptist. My teachings and my miracles. You want to know who I am? Check out the miracles. Kind of self-evident. Jesus also thought that his teachings proved that he was God. I have a greater witness than John. My teachings and my miracles, they've been assigned to me by the Father, and they testify that the Father has sent me. The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. Hmm. They argued for a while longer, and then uh, the, media, the the feeding of the great crowd happens, and then the argument continues a little longer. And the people said, well, you know, if you speak for God, then let's ask you a question. What does God want us to do? And Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 29, this is what God wants you to do. Believe in the one he has sent. Everybody was hoping that he was going to say, um, show up for the sandwiches every day. People were hoping that he was going to say, oh, uh, he wants you to work miracles, and he's going to give you all this fantastic power to do it. He said, believe in the one that God sent to you. That's what God wants you to do wasn't a very satisfying answer. But Jesus, earlier than those two passages, really kind of draws this thing into razor-sharp focus. It's chapter 5, verse 24. He says, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. It's interesting, he didn't say believe in me, believe in Jesus. He said, signs that I'm working, they they point past me to God himself. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins. But they've already passed from death into life. Why was Jesus performing the miracles? To gain popularity? No. To prove that he was God. Plain and simply, to prove that he was God. And to prove that the God that people had kind of, sort of, believed in their whole lives was powerful and mighty and good and really interested in the lives of people. And so he came to earth and moved among them and said, Over here, it's me! Waving, trying to get the attention of everybody so that they'd look at him and he could then give them the life that he promised, that bread of life kind of thing that he promised. And, you know, if it was a fable, you know, if it was, if it was mythology, it would say one of two things. And they lived happily ever after. Or... The gods continued to mess with the people and make their lives miserable. World without end. That, that's how mythology and fables work. One of those, one of those two ways of ending. We got a lot more of John's Gospel to cover, and so we're, we're not going to talk about how it all ends today. But after reading those stories, it made me, <clears throat> it made me ask a question. Why did some people believe in him at all? Why did the people who didn't get everything they wanted from Jesus believe in him? If you are, if you're just checking out God, religion, church, Jesus, all that spirituality, that stuff, right now, um, what I've what I've tried to present to you today is the real Jesus. Not, not the version of him that often kind of gets uh, told, like, he's always only happy, good, nice, loving, kind, meek, and gentle. That's not the real Jesus. No, Jesus had, I, I'm convinced, Jesus had his sleeves rolled up about two-thirds of the time, okay, ready to put smack down, and, um, and he was gritty. And uh, he seemed to have precious little time for people who just wanted to do the dance. If you just wanted to do the dance, um, he'd just say, look, you don't have what it takes to follow me. Get out of the path. And he'd push right past. And at one level, I think it would be easier to believe in a Jesus who was only nice. But the real Jesus wasn't. And so... Today, I want to invite you to believe in the real Jesus, not the sugar-coated, um, yummy version of Jesus that isn't really that believable. And that's why people will, will say, yeah, I believe, and then not change their lives at all, because they don't re- you can't really believe in a make-believe Jesus but the real Jesus is somebody with whom you can have relationship because in some ways the rest of the relationships in your life have readied you for relationship with him because every relationship that you have at some point or another has brought disappointment into your life. The people that you trust the most are probably also the people you have forgiven the most. The people that you love the most and feel the closest to are also the ones who have said things that have cut you very deeply and have failed to deliver at times when you really, really just assumed that they would. In a real relationship, there's grace that has to be given or the relationship doesn't last. There's a sense in which every relationship that you've ever had in your life that has those moments when it's a little bit abrasive and those moments when it's a little bit raw and those moments when it's really exciting, those moments when you're blown away by how good it is and, and then those moments that are just kind of gray. They've readied you for a real Jesus. But the real Jesus, quite differently than anyone else with whom you've ever had relationship Proved he was God. The the, the strictest standards of historicity have been applied to these New Testament documents, and they surpass all of them. In in terms of just examining literature, we have a greater indication that that the New Testament documents are true than that any of the plays that you ascribe to Shakespeare were actually written by him. People uh, take take um, you know the the kind of research that means I just read you know this in a post on Facebook. People take those kinds of swipes at the New Testament. When people really rigorously uh, study the New Testament documents, they hold up historically. Jesus taught the things that the Bible says that he taught, and he provided the signs that he was God. I invite you today to begin a relationship or maybe to continue in a relationship with a Jesus who will not give you everything you want. There's going to be some times when he takes off the kid gloves and says, grow up, and pushes you aside until you grow up. There's going to be some times that he says, I'm not speaking again until you do what I told you to do. There's going to be some times that he says, you're just taking advantage of me. You don't want the real me. And then there's going to be some times when he says, let me heal that boy of yours. Let me provide for you something you don't have. And other times he's going to say, huh? I can't explain it to you, but you got to trust me, stretch, and hurt, but I promise I'll be with you. This Jesus, who proved he was God and proved he was man by being like that, said, I can become real life inside of you if you will believe if you will believe it means there's choice involved you see faith, faith isn't something that happens to you if you've been waiting to believe it's I, I just i don't feel anything you've been approaching it all wrong because faith isn't something that attacks you one day it doesn't happen to you faith Is something you decide, even if you don't get everything you want from him. This wooden bench at the front of our sanctuary is called an altar. Um, Altars in antiquity were places that they sacrificed animals. I promise we don't do that, okay? Um, Altars became places where people prayed after the animals were sacrificed, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for us once for all. That's good enough. And um, we pray at these altars pretty frequently. They also become the right place to put the, the, the silver trays that you see there um, in, in front of you today. We set the table kind of fancy for this meal because it's one that's extremely important to us. In this table setting, there's these tiny little... Cups of juice and these tiny little pieces of bread. And they become for us symbols, signs They point to Jesus. He said, remember the worst sermon ever? The one where he said, I'd like to be the bread of life. I'd like to really give you life. But unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part with me. <laughs> Sometime later, he sat down to a meal with his disciples and said, this is my body, and this is my blood. You didn't drink it. Remember who I am. Remember me, remember me. Remember me. And so, in the course of two thousand years of the development of Christianity, people uh, Christian people believe that this matters. They'll argue about all kinds of things about the details, but here's how how our version of the argument goes, okay? We've believed that the very act of taking these things can become a moment of faith for you. In in some arms of, of Christ's church, you have to have provided plenty of proof that you believe ahead of time, or you're never getting near these things. And there might be some argument for that. I'm not going to disparage that. But in our wing of the church, we have said, I might invite you to go do things 13 times and you never say yes, but if I invite you to a meal, you're there early. (laughs) And so this is an invitation to a meal. But it's an indication that I'm offering you my life. And when you take it, it's an indication that you're receiving it. in uh well just right now um pa- pastor Blake is going to come and stand over here and 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 serve right here at this aisle and, and pastor Dwayne's going to come and he's going to serve right here and the worship team is going to come and play you guys come ahead right now and um if you want to have a relationship with the real Jesus who offers you his real self and spiritual life thereby you can come and receive these elements. If you'd like to just partake right there and put the cup back in the tray, you can do that. If you want to take it back to your seat and and contemplate that and pray for a little while, there's little cup holders you can put there. If you want to come and kneel at the altar, you can do that. It's um, it's not a free-for-all, but it is you get to Jesus the way you know how to get to Jesus if you want to get to Jesus today. That's what we're saying. We would ask this one thing, that if you don't, Yet, want to connect with him, please just respectfully don't eat his body and drink his blood. But everybody who even kind of wants to, we believe Jesus says, Welcome. Pastor Kaylee's going to help as well because some of you may, may want to, but you can't come. And um, in this day and age with allergies and so forth, she has, um, um, oh, man, I don't see gluten-free. Do we have gluten-free over here? All right. Pastor Kaylee, you're going to two-hand it, okay? You've got some? All right. And uh, so you can, you can flag her down. Why don't you come stand over here, Kaylee, so you can, you can see folks. And um, Jesus said, this bread is my body broken for you after, after supper he took supper, the cup, supper, and cup and he said this is my blood shed for you drink from all of you and remember me so today if you want to reach to the real Jesus who's reaching toward you we invite you to this sacred meal please stand with me Gracious God. Father, I, I, I am amazed at this incredible plan of yours. I would have written a much neater script that was a whole lot more like a hero's tale. And because of that, people would never really believe that it's true. With all the dust and the dirt on the gospel Jesus, with all of the PR nightmares, still there were people who believed in him. That man that got chewed out by Jesus and then got his son healed, he had a really bad experience that day, followed by a good one. It's like the rest of us in all of our lives. It says he and his whole household believed. Lord, I pray. For those who are reaching your way today in faith, kind of half reaching your way, seeing it's hard, I don't I don't know how to do this, but I want to believe, I'm deciding to believe today. I pray that you would make your way to them in the person of your Holy Spirit, drop close enough to their hearts that they can say, "I experienced God coming near to me today. I'm His, and He's mine. Let all those who are reaching to Christ in faith come.